0: Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. I'm Kyla Hewson and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. And we're joined by regular guest and friend of the pod, Robert Miller. Howdy, howdy. And uh, uh, Robbie, if you guys haven't heard him before, is an activist and is here to join us today to discuss. This is actually going to be a little bit of a, a different episode. Than what we normally do, because we did a book report this time. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to be talking about uh, The Waste-Free World by Ron Gonan? Gonin? I don't really, I should have maybe looked up how to say his name before I, well, uh, whatever, we're going to plow on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't matter, he's, we'll call him Ron Gonads.
0: Oh, so some of us liked the book more than others. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, why don't we like start with just general impressions before we really dig into it. Uh, Robbie? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you have thoughts, I'm assuming?
1: <laughs> I mentioned this on Twitter. And uh, as I was reading this book, I couldn't decide whether or not I wanted to burn it or recycle it. Uh, to be either spiteful or in the spirit of the book, push it along to be something better in its next life like toilet paper. <laughs> Did not like this book. Zero out of ten.
2: <laughs> okay, wait. Um, what about in comparison to Seaspiracy, our last Reacts episode? <laughs> Which one's better?
1: <laughs> I liked Seaspiracy more because it was only like an hour and a half long.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that is a fair thing. That's a fair statement. What about you, Kristen? What did you think of the book? I thought it was fine.
2: Like I was... So it has a lot of really fun facts in it, and I enjoyed that. But I have, like, I wrote down when I was, like, two-thirds of the way through the book, but I still agree with this. It's like this guy gets 90% of the way to the structural root of the problem and then is like, hey, look at this shiny innovation. Isn't capitalism great? But it's, I don't know. So I've had a big problem with that overarching narrative. But on the other hand, there's a lot of good information in here, so it's hard for me to discount that.
0: Yeah, i I actually kind of liked it. So <laughs> that's great. We all disagree. That'll make for an interesting chat. Yeah. So we're we're here to wrap every every angle. Uh, but I think first, let's talk about what the book is about, and I can pull up kind of like the the book blurb if uh, if that is helpful. Sure.
1: We could also give our spicy hot take summaries of the book. <laughs>
0: yeah robbie wants to give a a spicy hot take of the book so let's let's have that
1: yeah it's a giant advert for michael bloomberg and a bunch of his pals
0: (laughs) hey that's That's, what i wrote in one of my notes i was like is this a giant (laughs) advertisement (laughs) we get it you like bloomberg (laughs) okay okay what about you Kristen? if you had to sum this book up
2: i don't know it's It's a book about the circular economy for finance dude bros.
0: Yes, that is an excellent description. (laughs) And I'll just read the inside cover so we can see what the book thinks of itself. The Waste-Free World is an empowering call from circular economy expert Ron Gonan to flip one of the greatest scams in history and create a sustainable, prosperous future. In The Waste-Free World, Ron Gonan reveals the secret history behind the wasteful consumption, economy that's that's cheated us out of taxpayer money, lucrative innovation, and a habitable planet, which he saw firsthand as an entrepreneur and public uh, official. Now the CEO of an investment firm focused on solutions, Gonan proves that a transition to a circular economy has the potential to replace the waste we have been drowning in with a system that provides for greater abundance. Through stories and interviews with entrepreneurs and business leaders, he introduces a wave of brilliant innovation (laughs) championed by (laughs) global companies and environmental advocates alike. The waste-free world makes a powerful case for a circular economy where companies foster innovation, investors seize opportunity, and consumers align their values with their dollars, and for the opportunity at our doorsteps. So there you go.
1: I think it's funny that he talks about, like, interviews with people, and it's like no interview lasts longer than, like, three sentences. It's a series of sound bites from a bunch of different people.
0: Yeah, Well, I uh, went through – so I actually read this book twice to get ready for this episode. So it's actually – this is the most prepared I've ever been. (laughs) Kyla, were you being
2: literal when you said you had a book report? Because I thought that was a joke, but now I'm not sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm going to be winging it, but I did put like a whole – I – I should send you guys a picture, but I did like put a whole bunch of like sticky notes on a bunch of pages and I highlighted stuff everywhere. I got got (laughs) super into it last night because I I read the book like I would normally read a book uh, because I'm like a pretty slow reader. I like to absorb everything. And then I went through and I just like skimmed it so I could highlight the stuff that like popped out. So I am ready to go through this book section by section, but (laughs) we don't have to do it that way.
1: (laughs) Actually, this made me check. I did like a Google doc with all my notes on it. I just did the word count and it came out to 2600 words. So I did actually write a book.
2: (laughs) Jesus, guys, I just read the book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I mostly just highlighted stuff that I'm happy to quote from the book, and then we can kind of discuss, but um, I don't know if either of you had a better idea for structure. (laughs) We're very prepared.
2: No, I just, I feel like the kid in the class is like, I mean, I did do the reading, but the one that's not prepared to answer questions, uh, so... (laughs) <laughs> I think your structure is <laughs> great, Kyla.
1: <laughs> All of my substantial content is for the first three chapters. And then after that, I basically just made a bunch of like snarky asides. Like when I say I wrote a book report, I, it's that amount in length, but most of it is just snark.
0: Okay, rad. I only have like three snarky things that I wrote. So like you can you can fill in the snark and we'll just go through then... Um, In through sections, and we can kind of talk about the stuff that I highlighted, and it'll hopefully jog your guys' memories about any sort of impressions you had while you were going through it. Does that work?
2: Yeah, I will say that. uh, So, like, most of the chapters in the middle of the book have the same structure. It's like, problem with ecology and um, economics, and then, like, here are all these fancy things that are happening now.
0: I literally wrote halfway through the book, I wrote a note to myself that just says, This whole book is just lists of companies doing some good. Feels a touch too optimistic. Leaves out a lot. Selective optimism. Yes. Are things really this easy and so much better for the bottom line? And also, I wrote another note uh, earlier in the book that was just like, this whole book is just a list of things that he's probably financing.
2: (laughs) Oh, almost certainly. It's almost like... um He didn't have an editor in writing this book, because I feel like there actually is a lot here. Maybe this is not the kind of critique that's entertaining, but it's almost just as though it could have been half as long and it could have been more cohesive with like another edit. And this was just kind of his loose notes,
0: you know, it's a very strange way to structure a book. That's true. But I did find it, you know, very readable, which is nice. Um, And for the most part, I felt like the flow went pretty smoothly. Like it made sense when he went from point to point. Yeah, it's true. I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I... I will (laughs) say, uh,
2: (laughs) when I was reading the chapters um, that start with the problems, I I kept being like, yes, I've done the right readings for our episodes, because he'd be
0: citing the same sources. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, he's, (laughs) yeah, he cited a bunch of books. You know what? Uh, Well, and you know what, let's just go through, because I'm like, oh, I got notes on that over here. So... In the introduction, I feel like the introduction is maybe the best part of the book. It just sums up the whole book and you don't really need to read the rest of the book because the rest of the book is just like examples of what his friends are doing. But
2: Yeah, I would agree with that.
0: I really liked the point that he was kind of trying to drive home through the entire book where he was saying, I think right at the beginning he used the example of that Fresh Kills Landfill and just a quote from the book, Fresh Kills became the most ludicrous representation of a perverted form of capitalism that established a dumping on publicly owned land as an inalienable right of major industries. And that kind of sums up the whole premise of his book, which is like, companies should probably pay for the shit they're doing. And I'm like, yeah, I, I would agree with that.
2: It was just so fucked, though, because it was like the whole first narrative of the book is like, all of these problems that we have with our consumption are like created through this like cartoonishly evil marketing, like regime. And here's all the ways that that's true. Like Exxon invented the the plastic bag, like things like that. And then he like switches the narrative at the end, like to make it overly optimistic. And so I found that like fresh kills example at the beginning, I was like, that's nice. But like, (laughs) you're actually talking about like a much rosier picture. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I thought it was funny, Kristen, when you were like, I did all the readings for this book. um, When Ron Gunn clearly didn't do any of the readings for writing about the economy. (laughs) Because it's like, I didn't even make it a page into the introduction before I was just like, this man has no idea what he's talking about. And this book is going to be awful. Because he describes like socialism for companies versus like this like rosy picture of capitalism that exists in his brain that no one else believes is real. Like when he's talking about the the fresh kills landfill, like that is not a perverted distortion of capitalism. That is the perfect distillation of capitalism. Like the entire point is to privatize profit and socialize risk. Like that is the most basic and fundamental tenant of like modern capitalism.
2: Yeah, but not if you come from the ideological position that he's coming from, right? And like, yeah, you can say maybe he should have read some Marx first, but like, I don't know, this is his perspective on the world.
1: <laughs> that is, but like, that is my actual contention is that he should have read some Marx and this whole book would have just not appeared.
0: <laughs> I feel like, I mean, part of me wonders how much of this is just him trying to appeal to the people who will read his book because nobody who wants to read a book like this is like, this is for libertarians and capitalist like (laughs) CEOs. This is for people who like are not on the socialist bandwagon. And I, I almost want to believe that like he's written so much socialism into the subtext that I'm like, is he just trying, is this like a gateway
1: book for, for dude? So I'm not going to
2: give him that much credit, but I will say that.
1: um, He doesn't know what socialism is. No, but like,
2: I, I think, Kyla's general point is right, though, because I thought about this book as something that would be really good for the people in my life who are very pro-capitalism, um, but, like, that also care about trees, you know? This is, like, a good place to meet them where they are. And so, yeah, it's, you're not taking them all the way, like, into socialism, but you're giving some very important, like, clues and... Also sharing a bunch of fucked stuff, you know, like there is some value to that, even if you don't have like, even if I don't really agree with the ideology that he's coming from, you know?
1: Yeah, but like, one of the reasons why I don't find that to be useful, though, is just because it's like there are several points where he'll kind of like, get towards something where you're like, okay, but because he doesn't have that kind of analysis of the structure of what capitalism means, it's a completely false optimism, when you mention that it's you know cartoon villains who invented plastic bags rather than <laughs> companies that were competing against each other to like cut costs and that actually if you are a company you have a legal obligation to your shareholders to maximize profits and that's why we have the disposable economy we have today not because some cartoonish villain in the 1910s decided that we should throw everything away like you can't actually approach solving the problem i think one of the most interesting things about this was that he has like all of these like rosy pictures of like these big companies doing big things. But even the book admits that like 62% of companies um, say they support the circular economy, but only 16% do anything that could even remotely (laughs) be considered to be that. It's like one of the issues with this kind of like capitalist greenwashing that he's doing is that it's trying to tell people everything is fine because the techno wizards will solve it. And it's like the techno wizards will not solve it.
2: <laughs> but like he is a techno wizard. So what do you expect him to say?
0: <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. I, don't know. I, I agree, him to I agree read with that.
1: And read book. <laughs> I reads and book.
0: I did highlight what I think really sums up like his view of what capitalism is in his head, This this kind of... Cartoonishly optimistic, maybe view of what he thinks. Why well, are we just adding is?
2: cartoonishly? Haunted? No, it just makes <laughs>
0: sense because if he's creating like these villains and they're so ridiculous, then his solution to those villains is obviously going to be cartoonish as well, right? So, here, here I think I highlighted this. It's right in the introduction, and I think this really sums up his 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 what he's trying to get through with this book, which is. What could be less capitalistic than private companies relying on taxpayers to fund the disposal of their product at the conclusion of one life cycle of a product's use? It's not even only the c- uh, customer of a product who has been expected to pay. The system has been rigged so that every taxpayer, regardless of whether they are a product's customer, shares in the cost of its disposal. This is an anti-capitalist tragedy of the commons if ever there was one, which is hilarious to me because that's the point Robbie was making except the exact op- You're like, this is what <laughs> capitalism is. And he's like, this is the opposite of what capitalism is. <laughs>
2: well, I think it's a, like this guy's assumption of capitalism is like capitalism within a strong state framework, which is obviously not like what capital C capitalists um, promote. But I think it's like, that's why there's a bit of a clash there, right? Because Ronan thinks like, as long as you have um, the right buttresses, capitalism is actually a force for equality and like, efficiency. And, you know, Robbie's got the traditional like, um, anti-capitalist viewpoint that it eventually becomes just about exploiting everything.
1: But he's not even a statist. Like, he at no point advocates for government intervention.
2: Oh, that's not true. He talks about plastic (laughs) bans.
1: He never says, like, this is how we solve the plastic problem. He says we solve the plastic problem because some philosopher king techno wizard will defeat his enemies in the market and be the winner.
2: No, I'll agree with that. Yeah, there's, like, way too much focus on the solution being good guy capitalists instead of the bad guy capitalists who fucked up the planet to start with. Yeah.
0: But it's like, that's, that's how capitalism works. Uh, yeah. And
1: <laughs> on that same like anti-capitalist critique. Um, this was something that jumped out at me in the introduction as well that, uh, I think makes me not think that he has great motives for doing this because like I'm fundamentally suspicious of every business and industrial leader who then goes into the civil service and leaves the civil service to go back to those industry positions. That like, I feel like we should be treating Ron Gonan's opinion on a lot of these issues with the same amount of skepticism we do on like Joe Mnuchin running the treasury department. Is that it's like, these are entrepreneurs and people who are in it for profit, who just so happened to be selected for civil service by Mike Bloomberg, who is a cartoonish villain, basically. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like if ever there
1: was one. And now he is leveraging his like experience in civil service to get civil service to pump huge amounts of money into companies that he is probably a part of.
0: Yeah, like the right in the introduction, he, he introduces himself like, in my role now as founder and CEO of Closed Loop Partners, the first investment firm dedicated entirely to financing the adoption of Circular Solutions. I'm like, oh, okay, so you have a vested interest in in the success of all of the companies that you're talking about for the rest of this book so of course you're going to talk about them in a positive light
2: this is interesting cuz i didn't think about his life stories being like that cynically at all um i kind of thought of it as like this civil servant who i mean i don't know how he came to his position but he clearly does know a lot about this stuff I, one thing that i like i think we could all agree is that Maybe there's not enough marks in it, Robbie, but it is pretty well researched. Um, And then, like, to found uh, an investment firm that's focused on sustainability, maybe, like, that it's not a wide enough area of finance that I would think somebody would do it solely out of financial gain. So, if you were going to do that, you could do something else. But maybe I'm wrong.
0: No, part of part of my skepticism was just like, oh, he wrote a book to kind of like push his, his investments. But uh, I, I like that. I like that he's investing in green solutions. Like I don't have a problem with that. I was just, I was just like, oh, this book is just a giant advertisement.
2: No, it totally is. Uh, I just, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is the cynical perspective because I, I found myself being very persuaded about it, like by it. While well, you guys were talking, but that just wasn't my initial impression. I wonder.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I wanted to give him a little bit of credit in the introduction. He does talk about, for three paragraphs, how the current system is harder for indigenous peoples. And and he talks about it for three paragraphs, and I think he doesn't ever mention it again. And I just wanted to, before we move out of the introduction, <laughs> be like, well, he, he, he wrote more than one sentence about it. So, you know what? I guess that's... This book does not know what it wants to be. I mean, like, part <laughs> of my, like,
1: oh, this is this deep, cynical reading of Ron and I'm like, yeah, he probably is just, like, a good-hearted dope who wrote a really terrible book.
2: Well, I mean, I believe he wants to promote his business with it and maybe run for politics, but, like, I don't
1: know. yeah. <laughs> It's just, it's also one of those things where I'm just like, I I loathe when people are like, capitalism is so rosy. And at one point, I think in chapter one, I was just like talking about how it's like, this is great. We can all live in like Michael Bloomberg's capitalist utopia, where everything is a circular economy. But if you're black or try to go to join a union, you go to jail. Like, (laughs) (laughs) great, (laughs) wonderful. I love that.
0: Yeah, I think I was a chapter into this when I texted Kristen. And I was like, Robbie's not going to like this book, <laughs>
1: but, I <know. laughs>
0: but I do. <laughs> yeah, I did not.
2: Well, I don't know, because, like, so I definitely had that same impression, Robbie. Um, but on the other hand, I found myself going through each chapter and, like, I'll, I'll admit, I kind of skimmed the second half of each chapter because I was like, this is going to be useless for me. Um, but, <laughs> like, I found myself really hating companies <laughs> when I was reading this book. Yes. Which is like the opposite of what
0: I think he meant yeah, to do. Yeah, maybe, but don't you judge it by the product of the art, you know? like, <laughs> <laughs> I Yeah, well, no, I think it's what you guys were talking about earlier, where he, you're supposed to hate Exxon and love the good guys who are coming to yeah. save us from Exxon.
1: Yeah, but I didn't even like the good guys. Like, as we go through the chapters, uh, there are some things where I was like, this is not good.
0: Well, it- in chapter one, a duty to waste the first thing that I uh, <laughs> the first thing that I really highlighted was I actually I really liked this quote uh from, from Robert Kennedy sorry about the gross national product and how GDP is like a terrible terrible way to kind of tell the success of a company yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> or not a, a company a country like GDP is like a terrible way to tell whether a country is doing well or not. He he almost, this is another part where he almost gets there. Uh, he's talking about how G- GDP became the official determinant of a nation's economic success. And he's talking about what happened, like, what after World War II. And he goes on to say, with only men of similar ethnic, societal, and religious backgrounds attending, the decisions they made, whether intentional or otherwise, lacked a comprehensive understanding of how economies should function for the betterment of all. And I'm like, yeah. That's true.
1: <laughs> yeah, but because he hasn't read any Marx and has had has like no structural analysis, he just kind of like puts that out there and then never explains like why did Kennedy's warnings fall on deaf ears? Like why didn't people all rally around and realize oh GDP is terrible? And it's because like actually under capitalism Goods aren't evaluated based on their social benefits. They are only evaluated on their profit margins.
2: I just I can't imagine that he didn't think of that, given that he's talking about fucking like consumer engineering in some of these chapters. So I almost think that he didn't want to put the pieces together because like it would
0: turn off the readers of his book.
2: Yeah. That's what I was saying. (laughs) And also probably not sell his investment company. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm going to go ahead and just read that that, uh, Robert Kennedy quote then just so that the listeners know. No, no, I was going to skip it, but just so that the listeners can understand where we're coming from here. So the quote goes, Our gross national product. It counts air pollution and cigarettes advertising, and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the Redwood and the loss of our natural wonder and chaotic sprawl. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything, in short, except that which makes life worthwhile.
2: Yeah, I really like that quote.
0: Yeah. And then I I really like that he does go on to kind of uh, talk about Kate Raworth's donut economics and how that could actually be used as a different form of measuring the success of a country over GDP.
2: Yeah, but he didn't mention... I think quite notably, this might be way too nerdy a reference, there's <laughs> two big left-wing economics books that came out recently. One is Donut Economics, and the other one is called Mission Economy. And Mission Economy, which he notably does not mention here, is about how the state needs to take on a bigger role in politics, and it needs to stop assuming that the private sector is better at innovating, and it needs to like stop withering away from big challenges and basically like... The whole point of the book is like the private sector should do less, the public sector should do more, which is like in complete contrast to what this book promotes. So that's probably why he left it out.
1: Even donut economics, he does not mention is like actually very socialist in the sense that it like requires pretty massive central planning to figure out what those limits are. Oh, Definitely.
0: yeah. Like I wrote, I wrote a note in the margins here on the donut economics thing. So I'll just read the quote here. Economist Kate Raworth's donut economy. Uh, econ- uh, economics. Uh, A country's economy should be assessed according to how well it it, it meets its people's life needs while also protecting its natural resources. Circularity is at the core of her model. She minces no words about unbounded growth. In our bodies, we call it cancer. And so what I wrote in the margins here is he's trying to appeal to capitalists, but this is the core idea he seems to be missing. (laughs) It's right here. He quoted it. Growth is cancer. Like, we cannot solve it. Like-
2: but he, he does talk about steady state, the steady state economy, doesn't he? I, I, I could have sworn it was in here somewhere. I'm going to look for it while you say more things.
1: And like all of his big wins in the later chapters are like, look how much shareholder growth increased because of the circular economy innovations. Like, oh, look,
2: I, I there's a contradiction in the thing, but I think he does actually have the ideas, which is what makes it even more bizarre for me. Yeah. It's so yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah. So
0: like, it's like, he has a quote here that just like basically lays out the exact opposite argument of what his whole book is about, which is like, you can grow your economy at a breakneck pace and save the planet. And I'm like, I don't think that's true.
2: On the other hand though, I do think there's something valuable to making that capitalist argument. Because if you can take away like this idea that it's like financially impractical to have a circular economy and instead say, actually it's wildly expensive to the taxpayer to waste. Like, that's, I think, an argument that's really worthwhile and will connect to a lot of people.
0: No, I fully, like, I really liked that argument that he was making. I was like, oh, uh, a lot of people are going to like this and it'll make change for the good, like, but I mean, yeah, it's a little too in the middle, I think, for the three of us. But just at the end of this chapter, chapter one, um, I think here's an idea that kind of is summed up really nicely. We've become a country in which many of the same business leaders who loudly caution about emerging socialism in America, destroying the individualism and self-determination that supposedly led them to their success, also figured out a way to be the first recipients of government funding for their businesses during the onset of COVID-19, only a decade after they required public funds to halt the imminent collapse of their companies." Authentic capitalism is a system designed to reward competition and merit. American capitalism has become a system that disproportionately rewards those who profess to be its adherents, but behind the scenes have become practiced at gaming the economy for their own benefit.
1: And he actually starts the chapter with something that I think is really illustrative of how much he misses the point on this, um, which is talking about the Long Island Bottler Association, which was using the police to like, Basically, make it a crime to hoard glass bottles because they wanted control over all of them. And he's yeah, like, that fact this, was so
2: fucked up." <laughs> Look at this
1: wonderful <laughs> anti-waste ethic of like authentic capitalism. And it's like, no, this is what capitalism also like a very functional definition is: is that people with capital use their economic power to gain political power and bend the state to do their bidding and improve their profits. Like this is literally a case where if you are economically important enough, you can use the police as your own personal security force to enforce whatever you want. And so it's like, even in these like seeds of, of anti-waste and like authentic capitalism, it's like, no, nope, here's the, the thing you're missing that you would know if you read literally any other books that is just like, no, this is what capitalism is. It is using economic power to get state power That's why it's it's literally domination of society by capital owners, capitalism. (laughs) It's in the title. (laughs) Before we move on to chapter one or chapter two, there was also two other things that I, I really like noted in this chapter, which is that like he frequently just sort of like mentions very briefly the impacts that the world wars had on American consumption. And one of the things that is suspiciously Not mentioned, uh, I think again, because he is an insufferable like Bloomberg brown noser and American exceptionalist, direct quote from my book report (laughs) is that like being anti war and being a pacifist is a big part of being anti waste. And like one of the ways that you know we could dramatically reduce how much waste is produced is you know not bombing people because I can't think of anything that's more linear in terms of a take, make, and waste than munitions. That was something that I was just like, he keeps on mentioning the ways that wars affect our economy without mentioning, you know, that it is a massive wasteful endeavor.
2: You've just got my brain now on what's the most eco-friendly weapon. (laughs) (laughs) Bullets. I think it might be nunchucks.
1: (laughs) Swords, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. And the other thing that came in this chapter, which was Also, just me being like, wow, this it should be illegal to publish a book that has like economy in the byline, even if you have not read any economic texts. Because he was talking about like overproduction as if it was this consequence of a mass delusion of the American economy rather than a structural component of capitalism, which like Marx describes in a sentence, which is that if you have three companies vying for 100% of the market share, they're not going to split it evenly. Each company is going to produce. 50% 50% of market share in the hope that they win out against their competitors. As a result, you have 150% goods made for 100% market demand.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I think you're right. I don't disagree with that. Um, but I also thought that like the narrative that sort of this disposable society was politically embedded as well, and it was like an ideological project, I think that can also be an important layer to telling the story while we also acknowledge that capitalism itself breaks things, you know?
1: Yeah, but it's just like, for me, it comes back to where did that ideology come from? Like, why was it in someone's interest to promote that ideology? It's not because they were a cartoonish villain who wanted to destroy the planet. It was because they were, you know, the guys producing 50% when they only needed to make 30.
0: Yeah, totally. Okay, well, moving on to chapter two, the disinformers. I... I didn't really write very much about this chapter other than I liked it. I liked the way that he kind of approached it. And it's just um, an exploration of all of the different tactics that big companies can use to uh, spread misinformation. Um, And I was like, I feel like this is old news. I, I don't know that we need to spend a ton of time on it. So I didn't really highlight very much here. I just highlighted the fact that Oil and gas has been subsidized by taxpayers for more than a century, starting in the 1910s. Uh, They put the uh, price tag at like $10.7 billion in 2019 for the U.S. alone. The fossil fuel lobby has cried foul about socialistic subsidies to the solar and wind (laughs) industries, which are estimated at about a fifth fifth of of those. So the subsidies for solar and wind industries are like a fifth of those that the fossil fuel industry welcomes every year. So that was like the one thing where I was like, fuck this. Um, But that was that was all I really had for this chapter.
2: I will say um, my probably most highlighted page in the entire book was the section on plastic denialism. Uh, Because I actually really liked the way that he tore apart the whole, but paper bags are better for the environment. (laughs) argument. A, it's not, B, it's not even the right comparison. Compare it to re- reusing bags. God.
1: <laughs> My notes for this chapter was actually like, it's not as, it's not that bad as far as like a primer on corporate disinformation campaigns goes. You did a pretty good job. The one part that I was like, Ugh, was that he spends like 10 pages, I think, wondering why the media doesn't give a fair shake to like environmental groups. And I was just <laughs> yeah. like sitting there being like, how do you spend 10 pages just like asking these questions and then having no answer it just kind of like leaves it as like oh uh-huh. guess it's a mystery it's like
0: Isn't the answer that the media is owned by capitalists? Am I wrong? Yeah, of course it is.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it's also like that was just a totally unnecessary thing to put in the book like Yeah. Bro, edit. Come on.
1: Yeah, so we can also add he needs to read some Marx and then read some Chomsky.
2: And read a Stephen King's thing about killing your babies when you edit.
1: <laughs> and actually, the only the only thing that happened in this entire book that I highlighted as being like, oh, that was that was actually good. Like that was that was something that I liked um, was if I don't recycle it, how much will I have to pay to landfill it being the sort of like. Overarching question that we need to be asking about recycling and mm-hmm. the waste-free economy. Yeah,
2: you know what I really want? I want Ron Gonen to go back, and I want him to write me an entirely new book that is just him as the former head of sanitation, telling me how expensive it is not to recycle. I I would read the hell out of that
0: book. <laughs> That's like ninety percent of this book. He talks about it so much.
2: No, I know, but like. He's got all this other shit that like makes the book worse. Just tell me that.
0: <laughs> like, yeah, it's true. I I did find it when he was talking about his own expertise. I was like, mm, this is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Like when he was like, it's three hundred million dollars to to recycle or to throw away. Like what is it? Like the styrofoam packaging or something like that every year. I'm like, oh wow, that is a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: the the only challenge that i had with that kind of logic throughout this book goes back to my like extremely cynical reading of why he wrote this book which is that it's like okay so you don't want to spend 300 million dollars every year on you know plastic production companies disposal instead you want us to spend 300 million dollars a year on the companies that you support to make a like waste free way of doing that and it's also kind of vulnerable to the idea that cuz with plastic recycling for instance like what happens if actually it is just more expensive to recycle plastic than to always produce new virgin plastic like what what if he's just wrong
0: yeah he doesn't uh, that's what i found with this book was like i was like a lot of these statistics feel like really rosy and like i'm like he's leaving out some important information
2: (laughs) yeah although it does make sense like It's a resource. I mean, maybe not so much for plastic because it, like, you know, there's just so much of it. But, like, definitely an e-waste and things like that. It's very profitable to recycle.
1: Yeah, like, it was my only one contention. The more that I thought about that, like, I really liked how he framed that sort of, like, cost-benefit analysis around recycling is that I was like, but what if he's just wrong?
2: No, it's true. It's, like, the same problem that, um, so... For a really long time, um, homelessness activists were not making any progress in getting um, like a housing first approach, um, which is an approach where you basically just give people housing. It's like a right to housing, basically. Um, But they weren't making progress in getting that argument because they couldn't get people to care about the intrinsic issue. Um, And so instead, they tried to make this argument that it's actually way cheaper to just house people, which it turns out is like really true. But like, A, yeah, that's really risky because what if you do other analyses and it turns out it's not true, then your whole argument is shot because you've not been making this human rights argument. And like, in the second case, like, even if you do make that argument, like, you're still eroding the rights of people. So like, I feel like that's really analogous to the argument
0: that's being made in this book, you know? Yeah. Are you guys ready for chapter three? Yeah. Sure. Sure. Oh, fantastic! Circularity innovators forge ahead, which uh, that's that's a lot. That's a, that's a big title for chapter three.
2: Was anybody else playing an innovation drinking game
0: when they were
1: doing this? <laughs> just kidding, you would have died. <laughs> would have died. Uh, yeah, this chapter was was interesting for me just because like it talks a lot about biomimicry and learning from nature, but. One of the things that, like, for me is very core to that is social ecology and Murray Bookchin and all of these other, like, I can't do a podcast without mentioning Murray Bookchin. (laughs) Physically incapable.
0: (laughs) We're almost 40 minutes in, though. So, you know what? Yeah, I waited
1: a while. Um, Gonan spends, like, a lot of time talking about, like, things being natural and in a way that, like, is very strongly refuted by Bookchin in the sense that like we have always used nature as a kind of mirror for our own social interactions. And we imprint on nature, our own sort of like social ways of seeing the world in the day to day. And Gonin does this really like aggressively, where he's talking about like the financialization of nature and viewing all of nature as an industrial process or a spaceship and this kind of stuff. And it's like, the reality is Earth is not a spaceship. It is the planet. <laughs> like it, it is not an economy. It is a natural world. And the more that we imprint our sort of like social understandings of nature onto nature, the more we actually miss the boat. Like beavers don't build dams to provide ecosystem services. They build dams to live in.
2: <laughs> and to flood surrounding communities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: And so it's just like, if you read more about ecology um, and especially like ecology viewed through that social lens, a lot of the arguments that he makes around biomimicry really don't hold up as well. Like it's also, again, because he has no actual like capitalist, knowledge of capitalism, not just anti-capitalist critiques, but like capital is not meaningful unless someone is profiting on it. Like no matter how much you evaluate, like value a tree, unless you can turn that tree into profit, it is irrelevant to a capital, like to capital.
2: Yeah, but like market fundamentalists would say, so then you price in the value of a tree and people make contracts,
0: ah.
1: Yeah, and, but Gordon <laughs> isn't even a market fundamentalist. Like he just leaves how we're going to do that. And the reality is it's going to have to be not Mike Bloomberg and a bunch of friendly capitalists who decide to value it that way. It's only going to be protected if, like, either a state or, you know, direct action groups make them value it that way. This was just me being like, all of his arguments are hollow and nonsense. Blah.
0: <laughs> well, I, I do have uh, uh, one thing that I really liked from this chapter, which is, it has nothing to do with any of his arguments and probably should have been left out of the book, but I liked the part where he was talking about a portrait of a pale blue dot, because <laughs> I like space stuff, <laughs> and, and, and I'm a sucker for that, so... I just highlighted this quote that I really liked. Anders hurriedly captured a photo known as Earthrise, which is said to have had a transformative effect on humanity's consciousness of how finite Earth's precious resources are. As Robert Kirsten wrote in his account of the mission, Rocket Men, the astronauts had come all this way to discover the moon, but they had discovered the Earth. (laughs) (laughs) Which would be great, except that, as Robbie has pointed out uh, ruthlessly, um... Capitalists didn't seem to get that memo.
2: Also, the Earthrise photo, like every fucking climate writer writes about it at some point. And he could I know. have done it more beautifully. <laughs>
0: <Earthly> <laughs> I know. I, I thought it was hilarious that he put it in there at all. I was like, I, I like it, but also what is this doing? Here? It's
2: like, is this guy just regurgitating like a review of the literature on like fucking environment and climate it's he's just throwing books in here he's got no point of view i don't know, I don't
1: know. yeah neither <laughs> an editor yeah <laughs> one of the other very funny moments from chapter three was that it was very weird for me to see mckinsey cited in a positive light like usually whenever i see someone citing mckinsey it's for something criminal they've done <laughs>
0: <laughs> what did he cite mckinsey for i missed that
1: Uh, McKinsey was doing some kind of like environmental accounting work. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like it was very funny because in this chapter as well, there was one of the things that I thought was the most silly, which was that Gonan keeps on like making this argument about like karma that like all of these take and make waste, uh, companies are like finally starting to fail and like, they're all going out of business and not making money for their shareholders. And I was like, you give no examples of that though. Like. And I was just sitting there being like, Dow Chemical still exists, Monsanto still exists, Sackler Pharmaceutical still exists.
2: Didn't Monsanto rename itself?
1: <laughs> oh yeah, like they always get bought out and merged and yada yada yada, but like...
2: But they continue to exist. Yeah. For chapter three, I wrote in the margins, Robbie's going to hate this. <laughs> the start of the eco-services valuation section. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: it was, it's a terrible way of thinking about nature. Nature exists in and for itself. (laughs) It's not a fucking spreadsheet.
2: Can confirm, did hate it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. There was one one line that I wrote, actually, that I'm like, I would be remiss if I didn't say it specifically, was that a tree cleaning the air profits no one, even if it serves everyone, and for that reason alone, they will cut it down. It's just a terrible way of thinking about nature, and also of thinking about capitalism.
0: I do like the part where he was talking about the brewery that takes toast from bakeries and turns it into beer
2: yes they sound awesome
0: i have no qualms <laughs> with them yeah, I, try
1: that. I
0: i like i liked the kind of like the handful of examples of how he was like oh this is how companies could create a symbiotic relationship and i was like okay cool but like
2: my concern with that is um it starts to feel very company townish and there lie dragons yeah
1: yeah, yeah that's actually the beginning of my notes for chapter four <laughs>
0: I I have a I have a another thing that I I highlighted here it says um Changing industrial processes so that they actually replenish and magnify stock of natural capital can prove especially profitable. And then I wrote the margins. For example, the once in the Lorax has nothing to sell when he's chopped down all of his truffle his trees.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you see, this is what I mean. He's just taking every single thing from like climate culture and making sure he references it in this book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh apparently my favorite fact is in this chapter. I put a little sticky note here. What is this? Oh. <laughs> The cost of the decimation of pollinators is subsequently being paid by many farmers who must dish out rental fees to bee cultivators to make use of their colonies. And inevitably, the costs of so much other environmental damage are being paid by the taxpayers, whether for cleanup operations, water filtration, and desalination plants, fishery restocking, and so many other con- uh, conservation and restu- restoration measures. So that's the, the true cost accounting that uh, that Robbie hates, but I I don't know, like... I, I I mean, it's as easy as making companies pay taxes, no? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, there's this part where he's like, bath tissue made from 100% recycled fiber had to be priced higher than that of competing brands because the competitors were benef- benefiting from tax breaks of about a billion dollars a year on the sale of virgin timber. Like, What? <laughs> Is that a thing? Like, fuck that.
2: I know. I really wish he'd taken all of these facts and made this into a book about how the system's actually quite rigged. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, I just,
0: in the margins, I wrote, fuck this.
1: (laughs) But the key is, is that he wants it to be rigged in favor of his companies.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He says, not only were the competitors not paying true market price for raw material, they weren't paying their share of the costs of Forest Service's depletion either. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. But you're right. Like, he he doesn't want that to... stop necessarily he just wants it to but
2: i think i think like the sustainable finance like culture really sees itself as being this like white knight that's gonna save the world through the wonder of investments so like i don't know i just think this is a really perfect embodiment of that culture
1: (laughs) yeah and
0: i hate (laughs) well i mean it was either this or bill gates's book and i really didn't want to read like the, another I was famous billionaire's try to like you
2: on mark carney's book
0: but it's like 600 pages <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> at 215 pages this one was already a bit of a slog yeah
1: 215 pages double spaced
0: i mean i i did read it twice so maybe that that's on me <laughs>
1: Shall we move into chapter four?
0: Yeah, yeah. Chapter four, Greener Grocery.
1: We kind of like, we did that like brief prelude of there be dragons when we start looking too deeply into like the eco parks and stuff. Because he glows about Pratt cardboard boxes. And I was sitting there being like, okay, so they own all of the inputs and all of the outputs of their company. Uh, We have a term for that. It's called vertical integration. It produces monopolies. (laughs) (laughs) uh and i was just like huh this really goes to show that like this is the reason why capitalism will not save us because the you know circular economy is just a bunch of big monopolies
2: so i will say i totally agree with that um but also this chapter had one of my favorite fun facts in the book
0: Oh, was it the rats? Because that was what I was going to talk about, too. No,
2: but fucking remind me about the rats. I don't remember
0: that part. <laughs> No, you do your fun fact first, and then I'll talk about the rats. Well, I
2: mean, it's probably not as fun as rats, but... Uh, <laughs> it was the, uh, the fact that the paper cup was invented in 1907, but it was, like, really hard to get people to use it because they would just use common cups... And that it was actually the 1918 pandemic that changed people's minds, and I got real like flashbacks to not being able to use reusable cups. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I, he even has like a like there's like two pictures in this entire book, and one of them is a picture of a child like taking a cup from a grim reaper during the pandemic the to try is to and people like
2: fucking throwing trash in the air and looking pleased. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I'm like, why put pictures at all? Why put pictures at all? <laughs> again, editor. I mean, I liked it. I really liked both of those images. So I, I, no complaints, just kind of felt weird and out of place. <laughs> okay, but let's talk about the rats part. Because again, it talking about out of place and not really... Making a lot of s- okay. So he's trying to um, get like green bins out uh, for people in New York so that people will like not throw their trash into the trash and throw it into the compost instead. So he says, one policy I knew would align all groups, reduce the city's rat population. Of course, separating our food waste from our trash so it can be composted and turned into soil nutrients or used to make clean energy through anaerobic digestion hey shout out to one of our old (laughs) episodes— should be appealing on its own merits, not to mention that it reduces landfill disposal fees. But I knew that demonstrating that the collection program would cut the number of rats scurrying around sidewalks and subway tracks would inspire unanimous approval, which is just like— I mean, that's a policymaker point of view, really. He's like, how can I trick people into doing what's best for them? (laughs) (laughs) Also, this fact that the average, I'm sure we've probably mentioned this in a previous episode, but the average American throws out a pound of food or 1,250 calories a day. And I'm like, oh, that's as many calories as I need to survive.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this chapter is also where I got the inspiration for, uh oh, no, it's chapter five. Um, where I got the inspiration for our upcoming Freegan episode that we're gonna do. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I,
0: and for
1: sure we'll be able to do it in Vancouver. So
0: yeah, that's a plan. Yeah, it's gonna be great.
1: Also, one up for Alberta, rat free, baby.
0: <laughs> Are you still rat free? Because I've heard that like you
1: guys have rats now.
2: Look, it's the one part of the Alberta government that's always functioning. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I kind of expected the rat story to make me vomit because I'd kind of forgotten, um, which actually reminds me of something that did almost make me vomit in chapter four, which was when he talked about paper cups as a sustainability moonshot. And I was I almost vomited. I was like, this is the dumbest shit I've ever seen written in a book.
2: Yeah, the solutions are oftentimes a problem. Yeah. But I mostly just skimmed those sections because I found them boring.
1: yes. Um, one of the solutions as well, I mentioned the the Pratt cardboard box monopoly as one, like a very bad externality of this system. The other one was ReCup from Germany, which is basically becoming like a coffee cup lord because you are renting your coffee cups from this company. And I was just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it... it felt very weird to literally be like yeah we're gonna have landlords but instead of land it's gonna be your reusable coffee cup i was like <laughs> god damn it <laughs> i hate capitalism so much just rent extraction everywhere
2: just imagine if you would need cup repairs how hard it's gonna be yeah. to get it on those landlords. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i did like uh in this chapter when he was talking about how grocery stores are learning that This myth that they religiously followed for years about uh, having to have like fully stocked over full shelves is it was completely unsupported by any data or reputable studies.
2: Yeah, I fully believed that until I read that
0: sentence. I was like, holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like, oh, like uh, when grocery stores stop just throwing away two percent of their food every day they save money and i'm like well no (laughs) shit i don't know why that never occurred to me (laughs) i'm such a corporate (laughs) shill i know (laughs) i've been i've been brainwashed uh and then i actually really liked um in this chapter because i've been reading a lot more and listening to a lot more uh podcasts talking about regenerative farming so i kind of liked that he talked about regenerative farming in this chapter
2: Oh, yeah. This is the section where it was like, actually, it was lobbyists that are the reason everybody knows Norman Borlaug's name, but not this other fucking organics guy that was doing more
0: promising research around the same time yeah 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 ah, yeah we could
2: have been organic always
0: <laughs> yeah yeah because yeah he talks about pesticides a lot in this chapter i don't know i found this chapter kind of boring but i, d- I do always love a uh, regenerative farming plug so everyone who doesn't know more about it should go right now and look it up or listening listen to the podcast how to save a planet always happy to plug them
1: uh, we've actually strained into chapter five this was actually chapter five. Oh, so.
0: oh oh i'm sorry <laughs> yeah,
1: that's okay it flowed very naturally from green grocery bags to actually like green food stuff
0: oh well then we've been in that chapter for a long time <laughs> you guys
1: <laughs> this was a chapter where i was like these all seem cherry picked like Cause I remember I've seen studies that directly contradict a lot of the claims that he's made in this one. Um, in terms of like the relative yields of organic farming, like there are very comprehensive studies that show that organic works really well in a very narrow band of areas. And outside of those, it has dramatically lower yield than so-called like industrial or conventional farming.
2: I think that has been like, they're starting to disprove that, um, And the finding is basically that, like, if you look over a longer time horizon, it does better. But definitely the picture he painted seemed quite rosy from what I have heard about organic farms.
1: There was another one that really, like, irked me when he was talking about the Beyond Burger. And it was just, like, completely opposite of every study that I've seen (laughs) on the Beyond Burger. And also one of those things where it's just like he is not a scientist. He is not someone who actually knows how to read and talk about scientific information because he cites a study literally from the company that might as well have been like a press release. And so it's just like so many of the stuff that he's citing in these chapters is like not independently verified, uh, just fluff from the companies to boost up their own operations. So it's like, Sometimes I was just like, oh, these are ads. This is really boring. Why am I reading this? And then other times I was like, oh, this is actually really obnoxious um, because he's trying to launder like press releases as science. You know, like, ugh.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I took the whole time those kinds of mistakes, just like, oh, this person isn't very good.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. like.
2: <laughs> but I didn't I didn't like attribute any. uh Malice to them. No, it's
1: not necessarily <laughs> You can definitely malice.
2: see how you would go that way. It's just Yeah.
1: I don't it's just very obvious to me that I'm like, this is not someone who is in it for the information. It is someone who is in it for the I guess pitch.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing I had for that chapter was just that they talk about anaerobic digestion. And I was like, woohoo, we got in early on that one. <laughs> so if anyone wants to learn about that, you can go listen to our episode on biogas. Yeah,
1: one of my friends from grad school actually worked on that for a while. It's pretty cool stuff.
0: Yeah, it is actually really cool stuff. I didn't know anything about it. And my friend works in it. And I we invited him on the show. And I was like, cool, now explain what's going on. And hopefully this is a good episode. I don't know what it is. <laughs> People
2: seem to like it, though. I thought I thought it was a good episode. But yeah, we knew nothing. I think nothing. so, too. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I was like, well, I hope this lines up with our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Any other thoughts on chapter five?
1: Oh, I did have an alternate title for this chapter because I feel like it had an unusual density of Bloomberg and Bloomberg Associates, (laughs) which was how I learned to stop worrying and love Michael Bloomberg.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's the chapter where he can really like talk the most about his time when he was like a public servant because his whole thing was that he made composting happen in New York, I guess. I don't know.
2: I guess also the styrofoam ban. I think he was there under that, which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, the styrofoam ban, I think that was the most riveting part of this book. I was like, oh my God, tell <laughs> me more. But I I was like, this is so boring, but I I I, I need to know what happens next.
2: <laughs> I just I kept getting pulled out of it and then I'd get pulled in by the next great historical factoid that made me hate a corporation. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be spun back out and wouldn't care by the end of the chapter.
0: <laughs> okay, well, chapter six is, I think, Kristen's Wheelhouse, The Sustainable Closet.
2: I found this one really boring to read, but it was also because he read the same two books prepping for it.
0: So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, This whole chapter, I was like, okay, we talked about that. We've talked about that. We've done an episode on that. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, this chapter was another one where I was like, wow, look at that corporate malfeasance uh, masquerading as anti-waste, which was the four days like t-shirt rentals, where I was like, great, now the landlords will literally own the clothes on your back. Wonderful.
2: <laughs> okay, yo, though, I was so mad about the nylon fact.
0: <laughs> oh, the fact that nylons, nylons used to, to not be break. really good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they used to not <laughs> yeah. break, and I was—I <laughs> also was really upset about that. I literally just had to go get new nylons. I wore one. I wore my last pair once, and they ran. And I was like, "Uh, I don't even want to wear nylons, but like, I'm working in an office now, so I have to. <laughs> if I want to wear a dress on a hot day, anyways." This
2: is how to get the millennial woman vote. <laughs> Make nylons better again.
1: <laughs> I did have one more thing to add to the the t-shirt recycling, though, which is that. Again, one of the reasons why I was so disappointed with Gonan's like hyper capitalist utopia um, is that that actually provides like a really great example of how we could do clothing libraries, that it's not just, you know, like thrift stores where everything is free, but actually having it so that you can send in your clothes to be repaired or upcycled uh, and stuff like that. Like all of the things that Four Days is doing are very cool if it was run as a library Um, and kind of dystopian and weird to have the idea that you are literally renting your clothes from someone as the day-to-day thing (laughs) and that at any time they could just terminate their contract with you and you would have no clothes (laughs) like
2: (laughs) oh there's a Cory Doctorow novel in there
1: (laughs) oh yeah absolutely (laughs) I love Cory Doctorow by (laughs) the way I just got into his Twitter recently and I'm just like oh man this guy's great I I uh
0: I do have some sad facts that. Maybe, Kristen, you mentioned in our clothing episode, and I just, like, blocked, but this one where it's, quote, Uzbekistan has become the world's sixth largest cotton producer, diverting so much water from the Aral Sea to irrigate land not suited to the crops that the sea, which was once the fourth largest freshwater lake in the world, is now only 10% of its former size? (laughs) What the fuck? I think we definitely said that in our... (laughs) environment episode (laughs) i just it's such an upsetting factoid that i can't yeah
2: Yeah, no it's really upsetting
0: i i was like surely kristen mentioned this and i've just forgotten but like what the fuck and then right underneath that it's like further contributing to the fashion travesty is the fact that an estimated 73 percent of clothes produced globally end up in landfills with only one percent of fabrics recycled although 95 percent of discards could be recycled and i was like Well, that's an upsetting percentage of all of the things.
2: You see, he should have just written a whole book as the sanitation guy. Like, tell me recycling percentages.
0: Yeah, I loved every time he talked about like here, 70 pounds of fabric trashed per American per year. That's more than I weigh almost. No, that's like half of what I weigh. But still, like, (laughs) holy shit.
1: That's more than I own. Yeah,
0: yeah. And and that's per American per year, but that's not like Americans throwing it away. That's like, here it is. It says 20% of what's produced never makes it into consumers' hands going unsold. Most of those clothes are sent to landfills or burned. The total lost value of this dead inventory is calculated at 50 billion US dollars in the United States uh, retail industry. And I was like, ah, that's so much money. (laughs) Yeah,
1: but at the same time, they are extremely profitable businesses.
0: Yeah, yeah, they can afford to throw away... Twenty percent of the stuff they make. Oh, sorry,
2: just had another random side note. I'm looking at the page with the paper dress thing on it. Oh yeah,
0: <laughs> oh yeah. I wanted, a, I want a paper dress so badly now. Really?
2: Because when I was reading the example, I was like, I can see why this didn't
0: work out. <laughs> yeah, but I also want to wear one once. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you make a lady naked once, she doesn't buy the paper dress again. <laughs> I know I was like how do you sit down? <laughs> I I also found, oh God, all of the most upsetting statistics were in this chapter, to the surprise of nobody, I think, but the consumer price index for goods overall has risen 63% in the last 20 years, but for apparel, it has fallen 3.3%, which when adjusted for inflation translates into a 41% real decline. So clothes have gotten way cheaper while everything else has gone up in price, and it's because like, well, companies have been exploiting workers and the environment, so...
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that fact really highlights the difficulty of engaging with some of these subjects, because it's like, it's coming off the backs of exploitation. And so probably that's bad. But also on the other wave of all of this is like this amazing improvement for consumers. And I think that's always kind of like the the dilemma, you know?
0: Yeah, what I did like in this story is all of the like positive fashion stories, because the fashion, I mean, we've done so many episodes on fashion. It's so fucked up and depressing that it was kind of nice to read his his uh idiotic optimism. Like, for the most part. <laughs> he must be very happy. <laughs> like, for the most part, the book was like, mm, this is kind of dumb. Uh, or maybe you're leaving some stuff out. But I was like, oh, no, he fully goes in. He's like, this is how fucked up the fashion industry is. And here are some companies doing good. Uh, I I want a, I want an outfit made out of algae now. <laughs> oh yeah.
2: Do you guys think they um, intentionally made the cover of this book like Dr. Seuss?
0: Yeah, probably. Honestly, <laughs> I hate that. Oh, and and you guys were talking about the 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 T-shirt rental business, but he's he's got a fact here that says millennial households spend on average three hundred and forty-seven dollars a year on T-shirts. Are you guys what? spending that much money on t-shirts? I have
1: never spent that much money on t-shirts in my life. <laughs> I'm still wearing t-shirts that I got for free in the eighth grade.
0: <laughs> yeah. I can't remember the last time I bought a t-shirt. I If I get a t-shirt, it's like for free as part of a work thing where they're like, please wear this. It says crew. <laughs> I don't know. Like, Kristen, is it just me and Robbie? Are we, are we hermits?
2: Well, I don't know. I have purchased two t-shirts in the last several months, but...
0: I would not dream of throwing them out, so <laughs>
1: <country>. <laughs> right?
0: Let's say the average t shirt is like thirty five dollars, which seems expensive to me no the
1: average t shirt is fifteen dollars yeah, let's be clear
0: <laughs> yeah so so how so how many t shirts is a person buying that the average is three hundred and fifty dollars a year
2: well, okay, just put to put this in some context, like the average um person wears something about seven times before they throw it away. Which
1: is insane to me.
2: Yeah, it's pretty mm. nuts. Yeah, I, I <laughs> guess this
0: panel uh, of three is maybe not the best. Uh,
2: <laughs> it does still seem like a lot,
0: though. But <laughs> yeah, like, I, I know we're not the perfect representation of the average millennial, but that, that seems wrong to me. I don't know.
1: I think I did know someone in university who did treat t-shirts as like single-use disposable items what <laughs> because he'd mathed out that it cost him more to buy new t-shirts than it did to just do laundry less because he was buying them from like alibaba in packs oh, of 50 I think that might be the for, most like, upsetting thing i've ever
2: heard
1: <laughs> yeah you <laughs> he thought he was very clever and i was just like that's ah, weird man <laughs> it's not hard to do your laundry like i know you're a 19 year old boy but like come on
0: gross <laughs> so there are
1: people out there but i still don't think he would have been spending 350 dollars a year i think he'd math it out to be spending like 50 cents a day on t-shirts i feel
2: like this
0: book would really appeal to this guy
1: <laughs> who knows maybe he'll listen to this podcast
0: i hate everything about that story uh any anything else to add Sorry for uh,
1: roasting you bud
0: <laughs> we didn't say their name uh anything else to add on chapter six
2: no, I'd already flipped over to chapter 7. So, I think I'm
0: done. <laughs> I've got one word for you, Benjamin. Can someone explain that to me? Like what what why is the ti- I've read this book twice and I don't know why that t- is the title of this chapter.
2: It's probably a reference that we just don't get.
0: Don't yeah.
2: It must be I don't know, do you think it's Benjamin Franklin? Like is it old school American?
0: Uh, what is this chapter about? I forget. It's about plastic. Oh, so maybe it is like the dollar. Eh. Yeah, I don't know. I uh, I do have a fact here uh, that uh, <laughs> made me laugh. Uh, when he was talking about how preservative glass is. So preservative is glass that a wine bottled in 300 CE, discovered in 1867 in a Roman uh, uh, aristocrat's tomb in Speyer, Germany, has retained its con- contents well enough that microbiologically it is probably not spoiled, according to wine expert and professor Monica Christman, Though she's quick to say, it would probably not bring joy to the palate. <laughs> <laughs> That was my favorite part of this whole chapter.
1: (laughs) I looked it up. It's a movie reference. There is a movie called The Graduate, released in 1967, and one of the most famous lines- Oh, is
0: that the one with Matt Damon in it? No, that's the one where uh, an older woman, like- Oh, that one, yes. Is, grooming a young Dustin Hoffman to be her sex guy.
1: (laughs) And apparently one of the lines is, I've got one word for you, Benjamin. Plastics.
0: Oh, okay. Oh. Um, so oh. that's
1: where the reference comes Thank from.
0: Thank you for Googling it. We all would have looked like idiots. <laughs> I've seen that movie, but like.
2: Okay, so this guy's like at minimum a Gen Xer.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's old. I mean, that's who this book is for, though, right? No, I think it's for millennial finance dude bros. Yeah. I truly do. Yeah. But they also wouldn't get that reference because The Graduate isn't considered a good movie anymore by uh, people our age, I don't think. Oh, so
1: it fits right in in this book.
2: (laughs) We've got to invite you on these reacts
0: all the time because you always hate whatever we give you. Robbie can pick the next one.
1: (laughs) Just invite me on to suffer.
0: So I was starting to get pretty lazy in the back half of the book here. I think you guys were too. I didn't really have anything else to say on the plastics chapter. We've covered it all pretty thoroughly. And he didn't have anything to add that I found either interesting or, you know, like, it was okay.
2: This chapter made me wonder, because I have never sorted my glass by color. And fuck, has it all been thrown out? Or... Do we have like a solution to that problem in our facilities?
0: I also was wondering that. And I think when we eventually do a recycling episode, our challenge will just have to be that we have to go visit a recycling center. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Edmonton does, I think, but that's because almost all of our recycling is manually sorted anyways.
0: Yeah, I think that's true most places in Canada. Like, I, I I know that when I go to the recycling depot down the road, like, they sort it manually, you know? Okay, so chapter eight, anyone?
1: Yeah, chapter eight. Alternative title for this chapter. Um, the Slave Emeralds in Our Hands, because fuck Elon Musk.
2: I know, I was like, I wrote when Elon Musk came up. Of course, this guy's an Elon Musk stan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: he does like Elon Musk. And that did make me think less of him as an author. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. I, I was kind of on board with this book. But then he was like, oh, Elon Musk is a genius. And I'm like, oh, gross. Yeah.
1: My question from this chapter was, has Ron Gonan met a rich asshole he hasn't tried to shove his nose into?
0: Oh, <laughs> yikes. <laughs>
1: Do not like Elon Musk in case it's not obvious.
0: Oh, man. So chapter eight, gold mines in our hands. And all I wrote here on the chapter heading page was, wow, we've done episodes on this whole book. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Maybe that's where he got most of his information from, Kristen. Maybe he's like, maybe he ripped us off.
2: No, I think this just shows that, like, we're talking about the right stuff because we're doing all this content and then we're throwing in some nice anti-capitalist spins, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I did really like this chapter, though, honestly. Like, I, I, yeah, I liked the way that he kind of approached this one and just the talking about how terrible mining is
2: yeah and he did a good job of talking about e-waste um as well
1: yeah i found this chapter perfectly serviceable but unremarkable again yeah i'm pretty sure everything in this chapter was stuff that i already knew i was like okay he does
0: talk a little bit about carbon negative concrete which is
1: it's the next chapter
0: Oh, sorry. Then I guess we're on the next chapter. (laughs) I just skipped ahead in my notes and I assumed that I had more than one thing to say about that gold mining chapter, but I didn't. So
2: I I did. I'll say I did like learning about the EU's resolution on like securing a longer lifetime for electronic products.
0: Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: That was useful. That kind of like right to repair legislation is going to be really important. So hooray.
0: hooray. And it's
1: not something that, you know, techno wizards and capitalists did on themselves it is the result of a rigorous state response
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah another another perfect example of this guy kind of missing the point of his own book
1: (laughs) yep just putting in every possible example that he can think of even when they are actively against his thesis
0: perhaps especially (laughs) (laughs) okay chapter nine Building to heal. Now, this is where I actually wrote the note. Favorite chapter, question mark. So this is the one where he was talking about like all of the different ways that you can use building materials like um, cement or even just like the way that a house is built to, to improve the energy efficiency of our buildings and the livability of the cities we live in.
2: Yeah, it's like one of the top emission sources in Canada.
0: Yeah, and also, like, one of the ones – maybe because we haven't done an episode on, like, concrete or 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 um, construction, but the ones – this is, like, the one I knew the least about. And I thought it was really interesting because I – he offered some pretty interesting examples of, like, solutions. And I think here is kind of where I was a little bit more on board because he brought up the point that, like, well, China's developing – So much and is likely to develop um, a certain amount in the next like few decades. That's just, it's just how it's going to probably be. So if, if countries continue to develop, not just China, like we're developing too, especially, yikes, as climate refugees start coming over and our population begins to grow, we're going to be building more buildings. I really liked the idea of like a carbon negative concrete and the way that like a lot of people are innovating to come up with new uh, and more earth-friendly building
1: materials. Yeah, I thought this chapter was interesting, but it also contained possibly the stupidest thing that he wrote in the entire book, <laughs> which was a very beautiful dichotomy because I was like, oh man, I- I'm actually kind of enjoying this chapter. Like I'm learning some new stuff about carbon negative concrete. And then he just like throws in that it's like, how did the Egyptians build the pyramids? We don't even know. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> 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 it's just like, Why does someone get to write a book when they know so little about things that they put into the book?
0: (laughs) Oh, I do have a section here where I wrote in the margins, fuck Reagan. So let's see here.
2: I mean, evergreen statement, but...
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. Fuck that guy. No, uh, so this is the part where he's talking about um, how houses can be designed in such a way that you don't even necessarily need air conditioning because they're like built on a slant or whatever. I'm not going to get into that, but the quote that I've highlighted here is, Despite reducing energy use by as much as 75%, most houses built in the U.S., even in the Sunbelt states, don't make any economic use of the sun's energy. There's a stubbornly persistent myth... That overheating in summer is common. This is uh, propagandistic deception by big oil. Today, there can be no doubt that the technology is superb, with much learned about siting of buildings, optimal materials for absorbing heat during the day and releasing it at night, and best placement of ventilation to lower or eliminate the need for heating and air conditioning. The IPCC identifies reducing use of refrigerants as the number one action for addressing climate change. So it's becoming all the more urgent as more of the developing world adopts air conditioners and as temperatures rise so this was all like this is like a a, this was all part of like this media coverage that happened during the reagan administration where they were like they built the early passive houses and big oil was like no they don't work and reagan didn't do anything about it and everyone still kind of believes that that that
1: falsehood classic
0: and that's all i have for that chapter
1: there was um, there was also one thing that again was one of those things where it's was like oh man gonan brought this up and it would be such an awesome opportunity for him to talk about some of the sort of structural problems with things but of course he never does that because he doesn't do that it was like looking at lead brain which is something that they introduce in the chapter which is basically that the lead certification which was fairly like gold standard project for creating environmentally sustainable buildings um stopped being like a particularly strong system of qualifications and kind of became like check boxes for engineers, which was a phenomenon they called lead brain that was basically like, okay, people are you know, checking off the boxes, but they're not actually thinking about sustainability or trying to innovate or do anything new. They're just checking boxes. And I was like, you could have explained why, like why is that a problem? Why does that happen? And one of the reasons why it happens is because they are looking to maximize profits, and so many of these like eco labels are marketing schemes and marketing ploys. And it's entirely sensible for companies to think, oh, we can charge a markup if we check a couple of boxes, so that we can use this like eco label to sell our products at a higher price. Um, like that's why lead brain happens. That's why capitalism is not going to be the answer for sustainable solutions. Because no matter how many beautiful guidelines you create and incentive structures you build, the bottom line is going to make the decision at the end of the day, and the bottom line is going to decide that your eco-label is a marketing scam.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think your point's largely true, um, and like there are huge limits to private regulation, and obviously public is better. But there are some eco-labels that do better. And one of the the things that I would say is really important in that is if you have a governance structure that mixes, like, business and, like, civil society in some way. So you've got the, like, environmental or community-based perspective that's wielding at least equal power to the the marketing voices. So, like, like, there are are good and bad shades of eco-label. But you're right that, like, the overarching problem probably doesn't go away, you
1: know. Yeah. And that's not to say that like eco labels can't be done well, but like it's even one of the things cuz he warns about greenwashing quite often in the book, but never talks about how it happens. Um and that would have been really I think helpful for a lot of readers who aren't as well versed as we are. If he had taken some time to explain like how does a label get greenwashed? How does lead brain happen?
2: Yeah, but he's not going to do
0: that cuz he's a sustainable finance dude, bro. Exactly. <laughs> okay, are you guys ready for chapter 10?
2: Hell yeah. Yeah.
0: Scaling circularity up. And it's just his imagination of <laughs> if, if all of the companies that he's currently invested in were to take off and all of the companies that are using the take-make-waste model were to disappear, this is what the world would look like. And I, I highlighted two parts of this. You rarely have to take out the garbage and disposal costs to your home and community are negligible. And I like that because I live um I live in a an alleyway facing apartment and so all I hear all day there's so many garbage trucks up and down uh cuz there's so many buildings to service. So I'm like I'm I'm all for this one. And then he, he's talking about how the cornflakes, uh, the, the cornflakes were made from corn grown through regenerative farming. A boom in regenerative farming around the world has already drawn down billions of tons of carbon from the atmosphere, reducing the effects of global warming. And I was like, oh, that is some. This I love the way this guy dreams. Yeah, except yep.
2: he still imagines that they're drinking fucking dairy milk.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he had a whole section earlier in the book about how like regenerative farming makes cattle farming good for the planet. I didn't highlight that because I thought it yeah. was. I, I was nope. like, I, I was like, well, this is <laughs> just bad, so I didn't want to talk about that. But yes, there are parts of this book that I. Um, I didn't just like – but what I liked about this book um, is just like it feels like an, it, like a beginner's guide for somebody. It's like a stepping stone for somebody who's like super hardcore capitalist just to kind of open their mind up to how things might be able to be different without, without getting them to shut down the ideas because it's so far left of what they already believe.
2: Yeah, it's if you view it as like trying to convince somebody who makes investment decisions about why everybody calling for green finance isn't just like granola hippies. This book accomplishes that like, I don't know.
1: I mean, none of us are in that position. So I'm not actually sure any of us can say that it does. That's true. Because like, I would not invest based on this book.
0: (laughs) That's, That's true.
1: I'm kind of stingy. I'll be I'll admit.
2: I don't know. I did learn lots of really great facts about the history of the economy.
1: Oh,
0: yeah, definitely.
1: Calling them facts might be a stretch.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, the fact that crackers were first just in barrels, and that's how Cracker Barrel got its name. (laughs) I get to live with that fact for the rest
0: of my life. I'm so happy.
1: (laughs) I actually, I did have some serious, well snarky comments about this chapter.
0: (laughs) Oh, good. Okay, tell me I'm done. My book's finished. I've closed it now.
1: Sweet. This was this chapter also gets marked for corporate malfeasance masquerading as uh, sustainability. um, Because this is the first time that I've seen Amazon's monopoly practices talked about in a positive way uh, ever.
2: Yeah, that was pretty fucked.
1: Yeah. um, For those (laughs) not reading the book, he talks about how seventh generation was a struggling company until Amazon decided to bless it with or Whole Foods, and then subsequently Amazon decided to bless it with market share.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Think about all the companies that didn't get that random blessing and how more of the economy centered on Amazon and its subsidiaries means that fewer and fewer companies get an opportunity to, you know, survive.
0: Which kind of like, again, disputes his whole point of how we belong in a meritocracy where innovation should be the number one driving factor of success. Yep. Yeah. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, as it turns out, capitalism does not actually stoke innovation because largely capitalism moves towards monopoly, which hates innovation.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, if you rein that impulse in enough,
0: I think, like, there's a world where it can work, but.
1: Yeah, if you're centrally planned. <laughs>
0: I don't know. I liked his vision. I just don't think it's possible. <laughs> I disliked
2: his vision thoroughly. But I really enjoyed the fact, so I'm going to give it a 3 out of 10.
1: (laughs) We still have the conclusion to get through, too.
2: Ah,
0: fuck.
1: (laughs) The conclusion was totally pointless. It was completely useless.
0: It was just the introduction again, so, you know.
1: (laughs) At the very end of chapter 10, he talks about, like, Phoenix, Arizona, and all of the things it's been doing to, like, improve its image in the world. And honestly, I don't care. No matter what you tell me, Phoenix is a monument to human hubris. There's nothing that will ever change that in my mind.
0: Don't they have a good sports team? I don't follow the sports.
1: No, I have no idea.
0: To our listeners in Phoenix, you can get, you can let us know if you have a good sports team <laughs> at Pullback Podcast on Twitter, and we don't want to hear from you on any other subject.
2: You know what? I'm just I'm going to come out in favor of Phoenix, and my reason is that Arizona would not be blue without them. True. So. true. <laughs>
0: Go Phoenix. Nice. Nice. Any any final thoughts or shall we wrap this one up? Our little book report project.
1: I was shocked that Michael Bloomberg was not in the acknowledgements.
0: <laughs> and
2: then he didn't write a forward. What a fucking diss.
1: <laughs> yeah, right? I was like, with the amount of time that Ron Gonan spent just like brown nosing for his old boss, which to me is the only like politically coherent way to think about this book. Is that like attributing it to him trying to like bilk people into investing in his companies is a little bit too cynical, I think, probably. but um Ron Gonan's entire political imagination being Michael Bloomberg is a good guy, and I should listen to Michael Bloomberg actually seems kind of plausible
0: so uh uh would we would we recommend others to read this? No, okay. Um, it depends who, Ah,
2: uh, yeah. I don't know. I think there is something that some people can get out of it. I would say anybody that's been listening to this podcast for any amount of time does not need it.
0: We're better. We're better than this book.
2: (laughs) We did the same research as this guy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. Well, if anyone has anything, I feel like we haven't gotten a lot of pushback on a lot of our episodes, except for the palm oil one, weirdly. (laughs) but. Or we had two trolls. <laughs> <laughs> this, this might be, maybe this will be the one that that, that breaks that, uh, that pattern. If you guys want to tr- troll us, send us some uh, polite disagreements. Or if you have read this book and are in complete agreement, you know, hit us up on Twitter at Pullback Podcast. We're always there. And we'll catch you on the next episode.